Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Last week, Pastor Murphy began showing us the Old Testament promises and prophecies that support the new gospel that Paul is teaching. Grab something to write with as Pastor Murphy is going to show us over 25 of these Old Testament passages. The Apostle Paul wants to know that the gospel has Old Testament roots. He wanted to know the gospel has a foundation in the Old Testament scripture. So he wants to draw the attention that everything I say to you about this gospel, there is some Old Testament reference that verifies that this gospel is not a new gospel. It's not a newfangled gospel. This is a gospel that God promised in the Old Testament. And so tonight... I want to begin to show you how the Apostle Paul, uh, in making that reference, I want to trace the gospel promises that in the Old Testament, that when Jesus Christ came on the scene and Jesus Christ said, I am the Messiah, the whole world would have known he's the Messiah. He fulfilled all the credentials. There's no other man now or then that could have fulfilled those precise credentials that were given in the Old Testament. Uh, And that was crucially important, by the way, that when our Lord came, that he would have these identifying marks. Because the Old Testament gives you a profile. The Old Testament prophet paints a portrait of what the Messiah would be. This one that would bring the glad news, the glad tidings, the gospel. This one, this is how you will know him. These are the marks. These are the authentic marks. These are his credentials. And throughout the Old Testament... There are sprinklings of truths and promises that God gave so that when Messiah came, that would bring the glad tidings, the gospel, because he is the God news himself. He is the gospel. There will be no doubt as to who he is. Now, by the way, it is interesting that when you begin to look at the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, and you begin to examine the, 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 the teachings and the time when the Apostle Paul preaches. You'll find that the Apostle Paul is always very, very careful to say to the people, what I'm saying to you is authenticated by the Old Testament. It has biblical roots. It has scriptural roots. It has divine roots. This is not just Pauline doctrine. This is how, these are things that are rooted and grounded in scripture. They are endorsed and sanctioned by the Old Testament. Let me use one or two examples just a moment before we begin to look at the promises that were given in connection. If you were to go to the book of Acts chapter 13, you will find we're given a very long account of the apostles' ministry in a place called Antioch in Pisidia. You'll find that the apostle Paul and the entourage of other people who are with him goes into the synagogue and they begin to sit in the synagogue and the the synagogue leader sees these strangers and asks them, do you have anything to say? And the apostle Paul gets up and begins to preach and he delivers to them a most remarkable sermon that is focused on Christ as Messiah. And when Paul is talking about Christ as Messiah, you know what Paul says? In verse number 23, Paul grounds all that he's been preaching to them and the fact That he has Old Testament precedent for it. He says of this man's seed. Have God according to his promise raised up of Israel a savior. Did you see that? God according to the promise. 
That's why Paul says this gospel is promised in the Holy Scriptures. In his preaching to the Jews, he has to ground what he's saying in the Old Testament prophetic writings. And then Paul, and by the way, what we have in the book of Acts is a synopsis, a precis of Paul's preaching. It's just a summary of what Paul preached. See, Believe in me, he was a long-winded preacher. Acts chapter 20, preached so long a man falls down from heaven and then, you remember that? Went to midnight, Paul spent some time preaching, brother. See? So what we have when we come to these other, this uh, book of Acts and we see Paul preaching, what you have there is a summary statement. So having begun to preach in the synagogue to the Jews concerning the Messiah, the apostle Paul thinks it is absolutely essential to say to the Jews, look, according to the promise made, God has raised up unto Israel a savior of the seed of David. You see what he's doing? He's going back to the promise that was given to them. Another example I draw your attention to is Acts chapter 17 verse 2. It gives an account where Paul first preaches in, in Thessalonica. He goes into the synagogue. And the Bible says, as his custom was. What was his custom? Verse 2 says this. Paul, as his manner he was, he went into the synagogue and reasoned for three Sabbaths. Out of the scriptures. In other words, what Paul was doing when he was preaching in the, in, in the New Testament, in the time of the book of Acts, and, and preaching in the synagogue, the apostle Paul in his preaching was documenting from the scriptures that the Messiah would come. He always was going back to the promises of the prophets to show that this Messiah is indeed the Christ of God, the Savior of the world. I did that to say to you that when Paul writes now to this church in verse number 2, he is also concerned that this Gentile church understands, like the Jews understood, that what he's preaching about this gospel of God is a gospel that was promised and has Old Testament roots and Old Testament sanction. That's what Paul is doing here in this particular passage. So, it's important for us tonight to understand that our Christian faith is grounded in two immovable, indisputable facts. Our faith is grounded in history. Never forget that. We can never surrender history. And if you want to know if Jesus Christ, a real person called Jesus Christ lived, I will say to you, check Josephus and Taxitus and the other histories of the time and you will find that Jesus was not a mythological figure. He was a real person, a historical person. We dare not surrender that. History is on the side of Christianity. And by the way, there is more proof for his existence than for Plato's existence or Aristotle's existence. There are more documents, 5,000 of them, to confirm that there was indeed the Christ of God. But it's another great bastion of Christianity. Another immutable, indisputable reality, and that is Bible prophecy. Listen, if you were to ask me what makes the Christian faith superior to any others, give me a reason. I will say to you, find another one that has prophecy in it. That can be so precise. There's none. Because only the God of the Bible knows the future. Only that God can look 800 years down the line and see a man that is not even in his mother's womb yet, not even conceived, exactly what would happen to him, where he would be born. See, only a God can do that, because the God of the Bible is a God of history. 
He's a God of eternity. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning and everything in between. See, That's the kind of God we have of the Christian God. And so what I want to do tonight is to take that verse where Paul says, which was promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I want to trace the, the portrait. I want to give you the profile, the prophetic profile, the messianic profile of when he came, how we know that he's the one. How we know he's the one. And again, Paul's answer is, he's the one because promises were made in the scripture about him when he came. Let me begin to trace these things for you. Number one, let's begin with the promises, the prophecies about the Messiah. Where do we start? Well, we start in Genesis chapter 3. Where the first promise ever given concerning the Messiah is laid out in verse 15. It is called the Proto-Evangelium. What it means, it is when the Lord said to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would do what? Bruise the serpent's head. And you remember it said the serpent would bruise his heel. Now that is very significant that I know sometimes we think when the Lord got crucified that the nails went through here. But the discovery of those who have been crucified, the nail didn't go through here, it went right through the heel. Precisely as scripture promised. The serpent would bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And when we come to Galatians, it talk about when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. See, of a seed of a woman. There in the very garden of Eden for the time sin began, God already had his plan laid out. And God gave a promise. One is coming, not the seed of a man, but the seed of a woman. And you see, Jesus Christ had one father. He's God. Not Joseph. He is the God man. But he will come through the seed of the woman. That is the very first passage in scripture where a promise is given. That the Messiah is coming. One is coming that will bruise the serpent's head. And crush the head. And if you know anything about the head of the serpent, it's the most delicate part of him. The way to kill him is to hit him in his head. See? And that's exactly what Christ did when he came on the cross. The second passage of scripture is found in the book of Genesis chapter 15 and 17. Where God chooses Abraham out of heathenism. He begins to begin a new order, a new spiritual order. And he begins to create a godly line through Abraham. And he tells Abraham, Abraham in you... And in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It is fascinating that in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, he did not say seeds, but seed. Which seed, he said, is Christ. Fascinating. A whole doctrine is based on one word, a plural word. People who don't believe in verbal inspiration don't understand scripture. Words, the very word, Paul builds a whole doctrine on a plural. Not seeds, but seed. Jesus Christ is a seed of Abraham through whom the whole world would be blessed. Another biblical promise. No wonder the Apostle Paul is saying to the church, I want you to understand this gospel I preach to you has Old Testament roots, Old Testament sanction. There's a continuity between the New Testament gospel and the Old Testament promises and prophetic writings, etc. 
And then we come to another promise, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. And there you find Jacob saying these words, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. The one that is coming is coming through the tribe of Judah. But he's called what? Shiloh. You know what the word Shiloh means? He to who it belongs. A messianic promise. That the Messiah would come to the line of Judah. And he would be in that line bearing the scepter. Because the scepter really belongs to him. You see, there's a usurper who has taken over planet earth. He's called Satan. He's called Apollyon, the destroyer. He's called the devil. See, He's called the God. Of the, he is a usurper. But the real one to come, whom the scepter belongs, he to whom it belongs, is Christ. And one day he will reign. Because it's his rightful place. And he will conquer planet earth and set up his kingdom. And the Bible says, like a big rock, he will fill the whole earth. And then righteousness will flow through the earth as water covers the earth. See, That's the biblical promise. And then we come to another promise. Numbers chapter 24. <laughs> what fascinates me about this is that you got a, a, a hireling prophet called Balaam. Who is hired by Balak to curse Israel. And I don't want to repeat the story about, about this thing. But you remember that the Lord told him not to go. But Balak bribes him, offers him money. He becomes a mercenary prophet and he comes back to God and says, God, should I go? God said, if you want to go, go. And on his way, God almost killed him. Angel was in his way, it's about to destroy him. But the point is this. Even a hireling prophet said these words. They shall come forth a star out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. He is that star that the wise men saw that guided. See, Because one day that same star will have the scepter. All of these are promises in scripture. And the apostle Paul is saying to these people, I am declaring to you this glorious gospel called the gospel of God. It's not something, new, not something that originated with me. It has Old Testament precedent. It has Old Testament sanction. It has Old Testament endorsement. The prophets of Israel spoke on these matters. You can have every confidence, Paul is saying, that this gospel is indeed the gospel of God. And then we come to the next promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 13. One of the most wonderful promises ever given to David. It's one of the vital chapters that the Lord said to David, I will put one on your throne that will reign forever. Now you can't put a man to reign forever. We all die. But of the seed of David, he will raise up one that will reign forever. See? All part of the wonderful promises in the Old Testament. And Paul is saying, this is part of the gospel. See? This is the glory of the gospel. That God promised, promised these things again and again. And then we come to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. And it tells us that when the Messiah comes, there will be a forerunner that will go before him to prepare the way saying, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. Do you know those exact words are found in the prophetic writings? Now how could God see that a man called John the Baptist would go before Christ and declare, prepare you the way of the Lord, a voice in the wilderness? 800 years before there was a John, there was a prophecy he would come. That's the glory of our gospel. See? 
I say to you that when Paul, listen, that's why I say to you that the Apostle Paul, when Paul began to deal with the gospel, he got lost in it. He just, I don't say he would ramble, but he just had to say more and more and more and more. Because it was such a thrilling doctrine to him. This guy tied in this good news. And he wants the Roman church to understand the glory of this gospel. And that's why he's tracing it. He said, it was a gospel that was promised. And then we come to Daniel chapter 9. Do you know the exact day that Jesus Christ would walk into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? Do you know the exact day was prophesied in the Bible? I don't know if you're aware of that. Read Daniel chapter 9 and I'm going to suggest you read a book by a man called Sir Robert Anderson. He was the head of Scotland Yard in England. He was a Christian man and he's written several books. One of the great books he's written is called The Coming Prince. Brilliant man. He's able to take the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 and trace it and trace it using the particular days and show you the exact day that Christ would walk into, come into uh, Jerusalem riding on the coal of an ass and, 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 and a donkey. The exact day was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. Men could have known the Messiah was coming and when the Messiah was coming. Because it was dated from 445. The rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. The dates are given. When the Messiah would come. And when he would be cut off. Daniel chapter 9. Read it for yourself. See? That is how precise God is. In relation to this Messiah. Now I ask you. Where could there be another Messiah to meet those credentials? Jesus Christ is God's son. He is the Christ of the living God. He's the Messiah of the world. He's the Savior of mankind. Because he meets those credentials. And then we come to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Another promise. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 13 is so precise. He says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. See? And if you come to the book of Matthew, we discover that the virgin Mary gave birth to Christ. Precise prophecy. Again, Isaiah is an 8th century prophet. 800 years before Christ was born, God had said he would be born of a virgin. See? That is how meticulously correct the scripture is in respect to these particular matters. Then we come to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, we are given the exact place he would be born. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea, according to the prophetic word. Now to my mind, this is one of the most fascinating prophecies that were involved. Think of the geopolitical engineering that has to take place to put Caesar Augustus on the throne, proud Caesar, that he makes a decree that all the ends of the earth be taxed and every man return to his own territory to be taxed. You know why that happened? Caesar thinks he's doing his own thing, but God has already prophesied He's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. He's not there now, but he's going to have to go back home. And the only reason he's going back is because Caesar said you must go back home. And Caesar's beating his chest saying, I'm so powerful. And God is saying, you're just a puppet on a string. See, see. I have predicted this would happen. He will be born in Bethlehem. And if I need to raise you up on the throne, if I need to give you a proud heart, if I need to make you feel as though you control the whole world, and you make this massive decree, and you're beating your chest, I want you to know one thing. You're fulfilling my purpose. The very place the Messiah was born was predicted in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. 
But there's some other prophecies in the Bible. Those are some other general statements uh, about him as well. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses said to the people of Israel, The day is coming when God will raise a prophet like unto me. The fascinating thing is that when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter number 3 and verse 22, Peter says, this is the prophet that Moses prophesied that God would raise up. Now think about that. When did Moses live? 14th century. So now we talk about Isaiah 800 years before, but let's go back to Moses. We're 1400 years before that. And God said, I'll raise up a prophet. And Peter said, this is the prophet that God promised to raise up and the people should hear him. Paul is saying, this gospel is promised. This is not some newfangled idea I've come up with. This is not a, 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 a new doctrine, a, a new philosophy, a new ideology. This is something that, it is steep in the Old Testament. Trace back in your, go back in your mind. Have confidence in this gospel. Because it's the gospel of God. How do I know it's the gospel of God? Because the Messiah met all the credentials. And that's to give the believer great certainty in this matter. And then we come to Psalm chapter 110 and verse 8. We discover in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18 he's a prophet. But in Psalm chapter 110 and verse 4 he's going to be a priest like after the order of who? Melchizedek. Now read Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 6. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 7 and 21. And you'll discover that he, Christ is called the priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the Messiah is going to be a prophet. But the Messiah is also going to be a priest. But it doesn't end there, does it? Then you come to Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 9. We discover the, the Messiah is going to be king. Daniel chapter 2, the stone that will smite all the, the image will fill the whole earth and establish the kingdom. See? In other words, this one who is the Messiah, he's going to die, yes, as a savior. But don't ever forget that he's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. Those are his credentials. See, Those are his credentials. In the process. And could I point out something to you here? Had he been born of the tribe of Levi, he would not be qualified. And remember in the Old Testament, the only qualified priests were those that followed the order of the Levites. See? But this one is of a higher order. Where do we meet Melchizedek? Have you forgotten? In the book of Genesis. After Abraham had destroyed the five kings of Sodom and he, um, a guy comes and meets him called Melchizedek, who is the king of uh, Jerusalem, also called the king of Salem. He is a prototype of Christ. People call it a theophany in the Old Testament. Because in the book of uh, Hebrews it said he never lived and he never died. He's a theophany. See? So this Messiah is going to be a prophet. This Messiah is going to be a king. This Messiah is also going to be a priest. But it doesn't end there. There's still more. Paul said, according to the promise of the Old Testament in the prophets. We come to Isaiah chapter 53. And what did we discover? He's led as a lamb to the slaughter. And he opened not his mouth. He's smitten. Now where do we find that text? Go into the book of Acts chapter 8. Philip is, is called away to meet an Ethiopian. He's having a tremendous revival in Samaria. And the Lord, the Spirit takes... Philip and brings him down to a place called Gaza, where he meets a, an Ethiopian under Queen Candace, a man who is the finance minister of that, that country. What is he doing? 
He's in his chariot. And what is he reading? He's reading from the very scroll of Isaiah. He's led as a sheep to the slaughter. But he doesn't understand. And Philip hears him. And Philip says, Understandest thou what the readers? He said, How can I understand this as a man? Teach me. He says, Sir, get into the, get into the chariot. You teach me. And he began at that passage and teach unto him Jesus the Messiah. He is the one that Isaiah spoke about. The Lamb of God. The one that will be led to the slaughter. See? And that's why John the Baptist in John chapter 1 and verse number 29. The CG, he said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the whole world. This is the one. This is the one. Today, people are still looking for the one. And by the way, Jesus told the people, you know, I come in my name and you reject me. One is coming in his name. That you, the one is coming that the world will receive. But the point of the Old Testament is that he's the one. He's the true one. There's a false one coming that will deceive the world. But the one is Jesus. How do you know him? He's the lamb who will be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And then we come to Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah chapter 49, and Isaiah chapter 59. You know what we discover in Luke chapter 2? He's a light, the light of the Gentiles. He's not only the Jewish Messiah, but he's a Jewish Messiah who has a global outlook. He's not only there for the Jew, he is there for us Gentiles. Thank God that we are part of his plan. See, think, we who were not part of the covenants, we have now been grafted into God's divine plan. When did that start, sir? It started way back in the mind of God that the Messiah would come and he would enlighten the Gentiles. See, he's the king of the world and not just in king of the Jews. He's the king of the entire world. And then another thing that we come to is in Isaiah chapter 35. This has reference to the miracles that this one would do. And in Isaiah chapter 35 and verse number 4 to 6, it says the blind would see, the lame would walk, the deaf would hear. And you remember John the Baptist? You remember when he told the, the king, you're wrong to have your, your brother's wife? And then he incarcerated John. Now, if you were John, here am I, the forerunner of Jesus, saying that he will cut down every tree and the axe to everything, and then suddenly I find myself in prison. What am I asking? Is he the one? And he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one to come? And what did Jesus say to him? Tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. What is he doing? He's saying, John, don't forget the credentials of the Messiah. Go back to Isaiah. 35. Isaiah said when I come, I will do these things. And I want to say to you, you know these things are being done. I am the one, John. See, that's the point. Promise. Promise by the Messiah. But yet, in spite of the fact that he will displace us excellence, he'll be a prophet, he'll be a priest, he'll be a king, he'll be a miracle worker, he'll be a teacher, he'll be a preacher, he'll be a healer. We come to the incredible, the bizarre truth. That we find it almost difficult to comprehend. That this same one will be despised and rejected. Do you want to know if man is really wicked? Do you want to know if man is really evil? Just look at what they did to Christ. And that sums up the depravity of man. That you can take the best that God had to offer. And despise it and reject it. That is the human race. See? And by the way, don't tell me if he came back today, you'll bless him. Please don't tell me that. If he came back today and said the things he said then, even people in church would curse him. See, That's how depraved 
mankind is today. But the point is, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53, he will be despised and rejected. It said he'd be beaten with stripes that he didn't deserve, but his stripes were healed. And then it said he would die vicariously. The Lord have laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is the vicarious offering. The substitutionary person would die on our behalf. Sir, where do you find that? It's all in the Old Testament. All promised. All prophesied that these would be the marks of the Messiah. And then, but let's not stop there tonight. We come to Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 12. And Matthew chapter 26 and verse 15. And we are told that he would be sold. Not for 20 pieces of silver. Not for 5 pieces of silver. Not for 50 But for exact 30 pieces of silver he'd be sold for. And read Matthew chapter 26. He was sold for exactly 30 pieces of silver. That is how precise God is about him. Listen to me. I, 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 to my mind, Christianity is the greatest thing in the whole world. I want you to know that. I, 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 it's like, how is it possible for people not to believe this? It's the only truth that the world needs to know. And don't apologize when people ask you, so what about the Muslims? What about the Hindus? What about this? What about them? They're all damned. All damned. Because there's only one Messiah. There's only one Savior. There's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life. There's only one door. There's only one name. There's only one mediator. That one Christ Jesus. But he said, Pastor, it seems unfair to me that what about those that have, you are guilty, sir, for they're not hearing, not God. That's your job. Give up your small ambition, sir, and go west and preach the gospel. Go east and preach the gospel. Go north and preach the gospel. Go south and That's our responsibility. If they don't hear, it's because we are culpable. We are guilty because we're told to do the job. See? So don't blame God because people don't hear. Blame God because you are not willing to make the sacrifice to take the glad tidings to the end of the earth. You're responsible. I'm responsible. We've got our roles to play. God has done his. Now it's our part. And that's where everything falls down. See? Our stupid ambitions that we have today. We want to be this. We want to be that. And by the time you get what you want to be, you're almost halfway your life gone. See? Half gone already. See? The great tragedy that you'll discover in the future when you stand before God. And you, these little trifling things that will stop you from serving him. Because you wanted this. You want to be that. Payday is coming. Believe him is a great, great day of disappointment. Great day of disappointment. But it's something else. In Psalm chapter 26 verse 16. The, the prophecy says in Psalm that his garments would be parted and they would cast lots for them. Now how in the world God would know that? If he were not God, how he would know that? If he could not see the future. But here he is so precise. He's saying the Messiah would be killed. His garment would be taken off and the men would be casting lots for it, playing dice for it. So precise. The marvel of Bible prophecy. That's why Paul says it was promised. See, not a newfangled theory. And then we come to Psalm chapter 22, where the very words he would cry out on the cross are given in the scripture. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God heard that long before they came for the lips of his son. He put it in scripture and psalms. It was prophesied. See, 
That the Messiah dying on the cross would say, My God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's one of the identity marks of the Messiah. But it's more than that, my dear friend. We learn in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 20 that, that he will be pierced. But there's no such thing as crucifixion. The world has never heard of crucifixion. They've heard of hanging and cutting off heads, but never crucifixion. But this one is going to be pierced. Why? God is going to raise up the Roman geopolitical control of the events. Rome will rule. And Rome will institute crucifixion. And so the Messiah is prophesied that he will pierce. But there's more to it than that. In Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 6 and then Mark chapter 14. He will be smitten. And get this. He will be spat upon. Anybody spit on you recently? Oh boy, we get offended with the slightest thing. See? But that's what the Bible says. He will be smitten. You remember they put on a mocked him and then they slapped him and said, prophesy to us who slap you. And then the Bible said they spat on him. The most degrading act of insult. See? That's the kind of prophecies that were given concerning him in this matter. But then in Psalm chapter 69 and verse 21 and John chapter 90 verse 29, it said he'd be given God and vinegar. Listen, I am so amazed at the position of Bible prophecy. The exact nature of it. It leaves no question in your mind or my mind that the God of the Bible is the true and living God. He's the omnipotent God, the omniscient God. He knows everything. He sees everything. He is that kind of a God worthy of us. And then in Psalm chapter 34 and verse 20, this is amazing. This is one of the most amazing prophecies. Not a single bone in his body would be broken. Now, now imagine this. We all know that Christ died on the cross. And he said there was one in the right and one in the left. Now I'm the soldier coming there. And I'm coming to him and I'm crushing his leg. But why do I bypass this, this guy and go to this guy and crush his leg and then come back to him? Because God says, you can't touch him. See? That's the point. He is controlling even at Calvary. Which we think speaks defeat. It is victory. Calvary is not man nailing Christ to the cross. Calvary is God putting Christ on the cross. God is the one that put Christ on the cross. That was what it's all about. So you don't feel sorry for him. Feel sorry for man. See, But not for God. And not for Christ. That was God's plan. In the process. One of the great mysteries. The sovereignty of God. The responsibility of man. How do those two conjoins? They'll conjoin in eternity. Right now we preach both. We teach both. In the process. But then it doesn't stop there. In Psalm chapter 22. And Psalm chapter 16. It says. That will not leave my soul in Hades. You will not let the Holy One see corruption. And Peter in Acts chapter 2 says. He spoke of this concerning Christ's resurrection. So even in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, the prophecy concerning the resurrection of Christ is there. By the way, it is also in the different feasts of Israel, the feast of first fruit. When it was waved, the, the fruit was waved on the first day after the Sabbath, the Monday. See? See? Even in typology, he would rise from the dead in the process. It is also seen, by the way, in the cleansing of the leper. There are two birds. One was killed and one was set free. 
The, the one that was killed was sure that Christ would die and suffer, but the one that was set free showed that he would rise up to the heavens, see? All in typology in the Old Testament, etc. The glory of our God, the glory of Scripture, the glory of our Christ, and above all, the glory of this great gospel that we preach. But it doesn't stop with his crucifixion in prophecy. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 18, these words, He ascended upon high and led captive, even his ascension is predicted in Bible prophecy. What I'm saying to you, God has covered all the bases. And God is saying to you, I am giving you a portrait of the Messiah. I am painting a portrait. I am giving you a profile of the Messiah. That when the Messiah comes, there will be no question in your mind. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the embodiment of the glad tidings of the good news. He is the gospel that was promised. That's what Paul said here in verse number 2. We can go on. We can go on now. We can come to the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And say to you that even Christ was prophesied in those things that happened in the Old Testament. For example, the Paschal Lamb. You remember when the, the Egyptians came out, the, the Israelites were going out, they had to kill a Paschal Lamb and put the blood that was preserved them for the death angel. You remember the credentials of the Paschal Lamb? He had to be a male. He had to be perfect. Not a bone in him could be broken. His blood had to be shed. The blood had to be applied. And the blood applied was served, saved them for what? The death angel. I want to say to you, my dear friend, that was a type of Jesus Christ that in his death, in his blood was shed. Now the believer has no more fear of death. Read Hebrews chapter number 2. We who through our lifetime was in fear of death. God sent this man in flesh like us so that we would no longer have to fear death. See, The applied blood means that the death angel can't do us any harm. Death is now a minister to the Christian. See, And that is why you find in the book of Revelation, he has the keys. What keys do he have? The keys of death and of Hades. See? He is now the master. He's in control. He ripped from Satan's hands those keys and said they now belong to me. So the believer no longer fears death anymore. See? But again, in the Paschal Lamb, we can talk about the five sacrifices, the, the burnt offering. That would be burnt completely. Speaking of Christ, that he would give everything, complete sacrifice. We could talk about the, the sin offering, that he was the, the, the offer for sin. That has to do with sin in general. And then there's the trespass offering, which has to do with sins in particular. Because Christ not only died for our sins, Christ also died for our trespasses. That's what... First John 1 John 1.9 said, the blood of Jesus Christ what? cleanses us from all sin. The ongoing cleansing is demonstrated in the trespass offering. See? And then we can talk about the meal offering. It was the finest of wheat speaking of the finest of its character. And then we can talk about the peace offering, which is what is the product of all that he's done for us. We now have peace with God. Every single one of those Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to this one. Paul said he was promised. In the Old Testament. Not only direct prophecy and indirect prophecy, but also in types and, in, and the sacrifices. And time would fail me tonight to talk about the furniture in the tabernacle. Every single piece pointed to the Messiah that would come. You see that showbread there? That the priest could eat? He's the bread of life. You see that candelabra? Seven candlesticks, as it were? He's the light of the world. You see that all the incense burning up? He is the intercessor that will offer prayers up before God for the saints. 
You see that mercy seat? He is the mercy seat where sins are atoned for. Every single item of furniture speaks of Christ and Christ alone, my friend. That's the glory of our gospel. That's why Paul said in chapter 2, in verse number 2, he was promised. This gospel was promised in the prophets. And then let me add some others very quickly. I remind you that he's a brazen serpent. As Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness even, so he must be lifted. But not only that, he's a ladder between us and God. He said that Abraham desired to see our day. And then he talked about uh, the angels descending. But the ladder, he is the one, he is the highway between heaven. He's the mediator between heaven. He's the traffic, the way that traffics between heaven and, and earth. He's Jacob's ladder. He's the brazen serpent. And of course, the various feasts, the Feast of uh, First Food, the Feast of Pentecost, etc., etc. All I'm doing tonight and all I'm attempting to do is something very simple. To say to you and to say to me that this gospel that Paul preached so gloriously about and, and is expounding so clearly in the book of Romans. Paul wants to say, look, this is nothing new. This is not a novelty. This has Old Testament sanction throughout the Old Testament, sprinkled throughout the Old Testament was promise and prophecy in type and in shadow that this one that would come embodies the gospel. This is a gospel that was promised to the Holy Scriptures by the prophets. And I don't know what you would say to that, but all I can say to that is hallelujah. See, what a savior and what a gospel we have. See, Friend, in closing, I want to ask you a question. Do you know him? Have you accepted this gospel have you trusted the Christ of God? See, do you want something that's absolutely certain? Something that is immovable? Unshakable? I say to you, trust this gospel, trust this Christ. It's the only hope of this world. And you and I have been entrusted with that. Are we so selfish and mean as to keep this to ourselves? What would you think of a man who has found the cure for cancer? But he keeps it locked away all of his life. See? What would you think of a man who knows the gospel and never shares it? Is there any difference? Having known the gospel, let us carry the gospel like the Apostle Paul. It's a promised gospel. It is found in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament. In almost every section. In the historical books. In the Pentateuch. In the prophets. In the minor prophets. The major prophets. In the historical books. Everywhere. You can find the print of Christ. As promised in scripture. Let us hold to our confidence. And let us glory in this gospel. And carry this gospel. And share this gospel. And that's what we need to do. As Paul did then. Even so we must do now. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for your word tonight. Thank you that we've been able to give a panoramic survey of all these promises and prophecies concerning your son that Paul says was promised in the Holy Scriptures by the prophets. Lord, let there be no uncertainty in our minds as to who this Christ is that we have believed and we have trusted. Holy Spirit, confirm the truth of your word in the hearts of your people. Help us when we leave here to glory in the fact that we have found the Messiah, we have found the truth. And give us a burden to share that truth with others. Lord, we know that's a gospel that has transformed us and changed us and made us new creatures. We know that to be true of ourselves. 
Why do we doubt its transforming power in the, in the lives of other people? We know our confidence in this gospel, knowing it's the power of God unto salvation. It's your means and only means of transforming lives. Lord, we thank you for the Christ of God. We thank you for the salvation of God. And we thank you for your word that reconfirms again and again the truth that we have believed in. Strengthen us, edify us, comfort us. Lord, thrill us. Send us out with a fire in our soul, ready to share the glad tidings and the great news. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy moves on to verses 6 and 7. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268 462 4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.